the Recovery Revolution will be podcast on the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Network. This is the Unruffled Podcast, episode 106. This is a podcast about recovery through creativity. We live an intentional life. We thrive. I am Sandra Primo. And I'm Tammy Salas. And we are The Unruffled. Hello. Hello, Tammy. (laughs) You are back. I am back. I'm so back. Yes, I'm smoothly back. My re-entry was very smooth. Sometimes it can be a little harsh from when I go away. It can be rough. It can be a rough landing sometimes. Yeah. No, I'm back from Wright Doe Bay. I was so honored to be asked to be a teacher there um, originally, but to, to go and experience it and be a teaching artist, it was it filled me up in a way that was um, a surprise. Uh, I got really clear on some things about what I want to teach, what I want to share. And that room was just um, so welcoming and lovely. And I'm already seeing people are messaging and doing gratitude lists and writing me about creative process and sending me DMs. And Oh, that's great. Uh, it was just... That's great. Beautiful. It seemed like it would be a good, safe place to sort of cut your teeth and... Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and there was great teachers there. And uh, Christy Coulter was on the island. I saw that. Yes, so she funny. was. She it was the Orcas Island Lit Fest. Um, so for those that are listening, I went to Orcas Island, which is a little bit of a trek to get there, and um, that's part of the fun. And Christy Coulter um, is a writer um, that we've had on the show here, and wrote. Um, oh gosh, help me, Sandra. Uh, yeah, she. <laughs> <laughs> Anjali was the essay. Don't ever put me on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing good can come from this. Nothing good can come from this. She was just, uh, yeah, I know. I know. It's it's one of those book titles that doesn't just completely roll off your mouth because it, there's a lot of words in Mm -hmm. the, and it, and it's so clever that, Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, she was there and she said, uh, a friend of mine is teaching at the same thing I think you're teaching at. And his name is Jay Ryan Stradel. And he wrote Kitchens of the Midwest. And so he came up and introduced himself and was lovely and smart. And what a phenomenal writer, Sandra. Mm. He wrote a second book. I think it's called The Minnesota Lager Queen about a beer family, um, which uh, I don't know if that's triggering for some people, but he was such a phenomenal writer. I'm going to read every word he's ever written because he Mm. was so smart and so talented. Um, And then I got to, uh, I got to share space with a a really beautiful, awesome writer and songwriter. And uh, I asked him to to come on the show, Sandra, hope you don't mind, but he's been over for 10 years and makes music out of Sacramento and his his name is Lee Bob, and the Truth is his band. Oh, and he was awesome, and um, yeah, it was good. But I was with people for twenty four hours a day for like five days. Oh yeah, because you went from com- having company to straight <laughs> straight to an event. And my roommates were so funny and kind, and just 
bonded us even closer together. Um, I had met them all at the first right to obey that I went to. And so the organizer, Jen Ferber, who we've had on our show, she put us all in the same cabin that I was in five years ago. Mm. Um, but with them, I wasn't, I had new roommates, which was them this time around. And it was really this awesome thing about coming full circle mm-hmm. and being back there and doing it differently, which I was worried it was going to be triggering for me because I didn't do it so well the last time I was there. Um, and I was still drinking. So to go there this time around and to be surrounded by f- such kind women and, um, a few sober connections was really, um, really good. I danced. Oh, yay. There was, is, there was a guy that started Sub Pop Records. Oh, yeah. Um, that he DJed um, and he played a song from, I think, 1971 to 2018, a song from every year. Oh, that's so cool. Like hip hop, dance, stuff I didn't know because I'm not that cool, but um, it, I danced all night. Oh, how fun. And it was Did really you good. do the hot tub naked? I did not go naked. But there's hardly any, the time is so, you're packed the whole time. So there's not a lot of free time. So we, um, we did not go to a writing exercise. Um, you could workshop something that you've written. Uh-huh. Oh, which you would have loved. loved. To do that, yeah. Loved. Yeah. I love that shit. I, love I did not take. have any, <laughs> I didn't have anything to workshop. And uh-huh. uh, I went to the hot tub instead and I needed that. And that was a good reset button for the, for the night ahead. But um, yeah, there's so many things I can't even wrap my head fully around what just happened over there. Oh, I bet. Yeah, because you just, you just got home, so. Just got home. So, um, but yeah, that was what I did. What, what, anything exciting on your, in your front this Anything weekend? exciting on my, no, I'm just getting ready for a few things. Same thing I talked about last time. I have a photo shoot on Friday, so mm-hmm. this will, it will have happened, hopefully, <laughs> by the time this this uh, interview airs. Um, and I uh, am just doing my improv and I'm writing and that's it. I have some, I have something in the works. I'm going to talk about it next week. I think, okay. uh, yeah, you know, that whole thing about that I was going on and on about, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a teacher. I'm not going to write a program. And then I had, you know, and then I got visited. <laughs> See, <laughs> it happens. I know. And so then I spent all weekend because it rained, like it stormed here all weekend this past weekend. And so I just uh, sat my butt in a chair and wrote like all day, all day. And lots of things came out. So it's funny when we say what we're not, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> I was, I was sharing at the, at Dobe, like, you know, I, I came here at this, to this retreat to write. And then I realized at that, at my first retreat that I was not a writer and that I wanted to make art more than I wanted to write. And so then when I was going through my Instagram feed, um, while I was trying to traveling and looking at some old posts and I was like, I just write differently. I still write a little bit. I'm writing it on Instagram. I'm writing it through the other things that I'm creating, but, um, I don't want to call it quote unquote writer that, that I just doesn't feel um, it's another label that, that stops me from doing the thing. Right. So I have to kind of remove the label. Um, but I love it. I'm, I'm glad that something visited you, Sandra, because you are an exquisite writer and I'm sure you will be a wonderful teacher. 
Yeah. You already yeah. are. I have to make it uh, something that I will benefit from. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that's where I was stuck. I was trying to put, put something out there that um, I need to get just as much from it as somebody mm. else will get from it. So um, that's how I had to shift my perspective on that. And then it just started flowing. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Well, I think I've kind of seen that with my friend, our friend, Amanda Grace. She did that tender course and I didn't take it this time around because I had too many other things going on, but I saw her change over the course of six weeks from teaching her course mm-hmm. to, um, she was evolving, you know, at the same time as she was teaching it. And, um, that's gotta be pretty cool mm-hmm. to take it with your students and also be the one that's shifting and changing as well. Right. Yeah. 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 So anyway, that's it. Yeah, I don't have much to promote um, other than my newsletter. I'm, I haven't done it for a couple of weekends. I gave my per, myself a permission slip to, to not do it. And, um, but I'm enjoying doing little videos instead of writing the newsletter. And I'm getting really nice feedback from my um, newsletter subscribers. So that's, that's going to awesome. stick for a while. That's yeah. going to stick for a while. Keep doing it. Oh, one more thing I will promote is I'm having a sale in my marketplace. Uh, just enter, it's easy. It's 30% off of everything in the marketplace. Just enter spring 30 at checkout. I've tried to push that on all my social medias, but I, I fail at that. I fail at pushing things. So, uh, you got to do it here. This is glad. I'm glad that you reminded me spring 30. I don't know how long it's going to go on. So jump on it. Jump on it. And next week when we talk, can we talk about your 100 day project a little bit more? Okay, we because <laughs> I need some time for that because I'm freaking in love with it. Right? right. So I yeah. So I wasn't going to do the 100 day project, and because I couldn't think of anything that I could, I, I needed to. I need to. I needed to be a vehicle for something I was already working on. Mm-hmm. Um. So I wasn't going to do it, and but I really love writing. I really love taking these outfit pictures and then writing a character based on the outfit because it helps me in improv, if that makes sense. Like the, because when you jump on a stage, you kind of need, you need, you kind of have to, you need a character in mind. If you're the one that initiates the scene, you need a character in mind. You need to be a person, you know, with a name and you need to kind of set the stage set the environment. And so these kind of help me with improv in a weird sort of way. So, uh, so I'm doing a hundred sartorial satire pieces, <laughs> photos with satire for the 100 day project. Well, you kind of have to see it to understand really. I don't explain it well. People are loving it. It's so, <laughs> it's like making my day. You your project is making my day along with Caitlin Schumacher. Her oh, Caitlin's mine too. Caitlin is singing. I got to look up what her hashtag Yeah, is. she's singing, singing for about a minute every day. And it's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Let's see her hashtag. Let's just look at it right here. 100 days of singing. And Caitlin is the one who does the music for our show, the intro for our show. And, um, her Instagram is Caitlin with a C, Caitlin Schumacher. 
I am here. That's her Instagram. So you can search her. We have a link in SoundCloud to her website. Um, she, her voice is like honey in the morning. Like it just is so soothing for me to hear her singing. Yes. She has a beautiful voice. She's an actual singer. So she has a beautiful voice. Not like me in the shower. Not like just a great (laughs) singer in the shower. Although you're kind of a backup singer, Sandra. So I could be a backup singer. I could, Mm -hmm. I I can, I can bring the Stevie Nicks to any situation. (laughs) (laughs) I sing really good in the car with the music turned up really loud. I am really excellent at that. Mm -hmm. That's my, that's my foray. All right, we could go on and on because I just missed you. I want to talk to you about everything, but let's let's get to uh, you know. Let's talk today. about our guests. So you you go first, and okay. then I'll follow up. Yes, yes. So um, Heidi Ferrer is a is our friend, and she has worked on a screen. I'm sorry, she's worked as a screen and TV writer, and is the founder of the blog GirlToMom.com, where she now writes about her recovery from alcohol. As a screenwriter, Heidi worked successfully for over a decade. Her first Hollywood spec screenplay sale was in 1997 when her script, The C Word, sold to producer Arnold Coppelson and 20th Century Fox Studios. Since then, she has sold and optioned many original screenplays as well as rewrites for other major studios. In TV, she wrote for the TV series Dawson's Creek. Heidi's movie Princess premiered in April 2008 on the ABC Family Channel to 3 million viewers. And Heidi is just as proud to have taught parent-led art to her son's elementary school and curated murals and art show projects with the kids. Her first novel, Crooked Line, Crooked Love, I'm sorry, Crooked Love, is available on Amazon and is based on the true story of her own young son's rare form of potentially fatal scoliosis. She's currently writing the story of her addiction and recovery as a memoir and, and writing and hosting the web series, The Click. On her new Recover Her, it's R E C O V H E R channel on YouTube. Heidi lives in Santa Monica, California with her husband and son, Bexon, where she's passionate about being an advocate for recovery and spiritual growth. You can find uh, Heidi at, on Instagram at, at Recover Her. Again, it's R E C O V H E R, and on her blog, Girl to Mom. Um, I want to mention too that Heidi tells her story, but she tells an even more in-depth version of her drinking story, which is, I got to say, it's pretty fascinating. She had yeah. some, some pretty, she's had some, some rock bottoms, um, but she does that on an, uh, an interview with Jean McCarthy on, on the bubble hour. It came out a few months ago, but if you go to her IG, the link is there on her link tree and um, on her IG profile. Yeah. She was a delight. We loved her. I think uh, we could have talked to her for a lot longer. She has many, many stories and she just, I love how she's kind of um, come into her own with all of this and kind of bringing all of those things together, um, aligning her writing, um, her acting um, and her recovery and now doing the things that are kind of lighting her up. Right. She owns it all in like a very beautiful way. I mean, Mm-hmm. Like I said, some she's had some bottoms, and but she owns it all in just a beautiful, truthful way, yeah. and um, she has a way of of telling it. And she's she I say at the top of the show that she's effervescent. She really is. She really is. So I know you guys are going to love Heidi. Yeah. Hey Heidi, welcome to the show. 
Hi, good morning, ladies. Good morning, Heidi. Where are you chatting to us from, Heidi, so our listeners know? I am in Santa Monica, California, which is basically Los Angeles, a little closer to the beach. And um, it's a beautiful day. I'm sitting at my, my aquamarine writing desk. <laughs> Ooh. Suddenly, crazy. my writing desk <laughs> is very sad. <laughs> oh, I love this desk. I love it so much. And I bought it on Etsy, actually. Really? Yeah. It's like a, you know, I think it was like used and repurposed, you know, type thing. Is that where all the magic happens, Heidi? Oh, yes. It's in my bedroom, so. Double <laughs> <laughs> magic. It's where all the magic happens. <laughs> well, Heidi, we have had the pleasure of meeting you. We got to meet at She Recovers in LA. And I think the word, one word describes you so well is effervescent. You are the most effervescent person, one of the most effervescent people I think I've ever met. Wow. Yeah, I would agree. Thank you. Right? You you do. You are you you glow. You you have a such a beautiful positive presence. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, very radiant. If I was still doing my Ray of Light series, you would be one of them, Heidi, because you just yeah radiate just positivity and kindness. And I just loved your energy. It was so fun to meet you. Oh my gosh, I already can, I, this is already a success for me because <laughs> you saying that, Tammy, that's amazing. I loved your Ray of Light series and I, oh. I stand your artwork for that from afar when I didn't know you. <laughs> I was, I was like, I wish you would do one of those of me. Oh my gosh, <laughs> they're so beautiful. Well, I'll be teaching a class real soon, Heidi. So if you Ooh, want one, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let you know when that happens. Awesome. Oh, well, let's talk about you some more. Yes. Um, so you, so you are this beautiful presence. When we met you, we took tons. Okay. And you know how to take a photo. Remember Sandra? <laughs> yes. Yes. I learned a lot from Heidi. Oh, good. Yeah. I can't <laughs> say that I've implemented it too much, but you knew like where to put the camera angle and like, yeah, you're like a professional. I love it. You too. <laughs> beautiful photos. Um, but what we do at the top of the hour when we, when we interview our friends, um, when you guys come on the show is that we let people kind of know a little bit of your story, kind of, you know, what it was like and what happened and where you're at and what you're doing now. And then we're going to jump off from there and talk about all of your creative, um, history and, um, what you're doing now that you're really excited about. So would you mind sharing with our listeners a little bit of your story about when, you know, what, what, what brought you to the decision to like quit drinking? Okay, cool. Awesome. Well, um, my story is, you know, my story is a little bit crazy and dramatic. And uh, so I really, uh, my story is very much the double life of a drinking mom uh, looking mostly really good on the outside and, you know, having, but I had extremely dramatic low bottoms. I was hospitalized three times with alcohol poisoning. And uh, one of those times I was, this is interesting because I was just writing my story for a website um, this week. And uh, I was, I've been saying that I was a 0.5, tested as a 0.5 blood alcohol level. uh, And that's really high. That's like a fatal dose for most people. I believe Amy Winehouse died at a 0.4. Oh, 
Oh my. Just to put it in perspective. Right. And, uh, I, my husband told me after I had submitted the story, he said, uh, Oh no, you drank an entire bottle of vodka in front of me, which is 16 drinks according to Google, um, in a half an hour. And so even just to Google my weight and that, um, what my blood alcohol level would be from that, it would be a 0.64. Mm. So oh, it's, it's crazy how, you know, um, I'm alive, you know, I'm a miracle to even be alive. But I, I always want to say that you don't have to have those low bottoms that I did to have alcohol, you know, damaging your life and, and harming your self-worth. You know. Right. Thank you for saying that. And I, I say the same thing. That's an important message to spread. It's so important because it's, it's about what it does to your inner life, you know, right. which is ultimately what, why I had to quit, <laughs> you exactly. know, exactly because the consequences, obviously, you know, if you were hospitalized three times, those could be considered consequences and they don't always, they don't always stop us. They don't because those three times happened years apart. You know, I think it was like once and then it was like two years later, it happened another time. And, you know, during those two years, you don't, when hospitalization doesn't happen and sort of the worst consequences may be a bad fight with your husband late at night when your child's asleep and doesn't see it, uh, or uh, bad hangovers, you know, or, or, or kicking yourself, beating yourself up. That type of stuff uh, was common. You know, that was how I was living my life a lot of the time. And I would just think that the other thing was an accident. I always had excuses like, well, I didn't eat. I am hypoglycemic, so that was an excuse. I had a crash, you know. Um, some of us are more prone to blackouts because I've been prone to blackouts. You know, occasional rare blackouts happen since high school, you know. And um, I guess it's chemistry. But, uh, so yeah, you can kind of shove it under the rug and say, well, that was an accident. You know, I'm, I was, you know, I'm, I'm, that's not going to happen again. And then it, some time passes and, and it does, you know, and it's terrifying to be honest with you. So I'll just tell my um, story in, in brief. Um, so I just kept thinking I can make it work. <laughs> like right. do, despite these mountains of evidence that it was dangerous for me. So I was like a, just a champion at denial. And I was a very sensitive child. Uh, I describe it as hypersensitive. Um, some people call them orchid children. Uh, and I was, uh, the first time I drank, um, I got drunk when I was 13 years old. And uh, I was on a date with a boy I didn't know in his van. And I threw up on him when he tried to have sex with me. And to me, um, I kind of felt like alcohol saved me from losing my virginity, you know? So right from the start, I kind of thought, well, it's kind of bad and it's kind of good. Um, and alcohol made me feel like it filled the hole in my, in my soul. It made me feel like a normal person might feel. And I've heard a lot of people, a lot of drinkers describe it like that. Like, oh, you know, I have skin on now. You know, I suddenly mm -hmm. can go through the world with confidence, um, like a superpower. And um, so I was mainly a binge drinker. Uh, uh, I had low self-esteem after my parents' divorce and my dad basically emotionally and physically abandoned us. Uh, my mom moved us away from Kansas where I was born to New Orleans and my dad didn't call, he didn't write, he didn't visit, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and that was right around like 10, 10 to 11 years old and I first got drunk at 13. So it was basically like I was a fatherless girl, you know, and I was looking for 
for love because somehow if your dad doesn't love you, then you must not be enough. You know what I mean? Um, then also in middle school, uh, I was bullied. I was the new girl at three different schools over three different years, um, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, five years <laughs> to be the new girl. Um, and uh, it was the mean girls type thing, you know, so I thought about killing myself a lot. And uh, whenever I could get my hands on alcohol, I drank. Um, so my lowest lows of my drinking career, um, at age 16, I got drunk in the French Quarter with friends, and I passed out. I left with a man from a bar, and I passed out. I was woken up with smelling salts by the police uh, in New Orleans and taken to Central Lockup, which is like the downtown New Orleans jail. And I was crying. They handcuffed me. They thought I was a hooker. And uh, luckily, I passed out in the public restroom of the hotel, so this guy hadn't even... I hadn't even had sex with this guy. I mean, other sort of physical reasons why I knew, you know, um, but uh, but that was terrifying. And that was one of the first times where my body was kind of left, like, you know, sort of helpless. And then that didn't happen again, you know, till I was in my forties, really, you know, something to that level. So I shoved that under the rug. Um, another trauma, I moved out to LA, to California to be an actress. And at age 18, my grandfather, my father's father, tried to have sex with me. So that was another family trauma. Mm. Uh, my dad didn't believe me because he wanted to, you know, side with his father who had left him when he was two years old. So it was like abandoned fathers, abandoned fathers, you know, that type of thing that goes on in generations. Yeah. Um, so in my, you know, in my teens, mostly some blackouts happened, but I was okay mostly. Um, in my 20s, blackouts maybe like every few months. But I had a boyfriend who's my current husband, Nick, and Nick drove all the time. So I wasn't really drinking and driving much. Um, and he kind of protected me and kept me safe. And so I sort of had, I sort of had an enabler, you know, right from my 20s all the way through into my 40s because we're still together. Um, and uh, I had a long break in my 20s. I didn't drink for like three years because I had um, taken too many antibiotics and uh for like bladder infections. And I got, what I didn't know, what I know now was a candida infection or candida. Um, and so I was trying to, I had pain, you know, I had vulvodynia, which is like vulvar pain. I had bladder pain and I had all these weird symptoms that they weren't uh, traditional symptoms of yeast infection. So we couldn't figure it out. And so I stopped drinking during that time. Um, and so uh, I also had endometriosis, which I'm, I'm much better from now, but I had severe endometriosis pain. So as that got progressively worse over the years into my 20s, I, I drank for that pain. So I drank for anxiety, social anxiety, and pain, emotional, emotional and physical pain, basically self-medicating. Yeah. And I got what, you know, what we like about alcohol, which is like the euphoric high, you know, that is, um, tends to be something that people who might end up qualifying as alcoholics if they use that word. They often tend to get more euphoria, whereas people who may be more normal, quote unquote, drinkers, um, you know, they get a little relaxed. <laughs> right. You know, we tend to be like, oh my God, like it's completely like the best thing that's ever happened. Um, I can take on the world, let's go to Vegas. Um, so <laughs> right. <laughs> Like at 11 or 12 or one in the morning and it would be like that would not have been a good idea <laughs> it would be driving from LA to Vegas 
Um, so in my 30s, it was very much a cocktail culture. We didn't have kids yet. So all of our friends, we just went out for drinks all the time, martinis. You know, I was like a three martini blonde, you know, in like the LA. I was a screenwriter. I sold a screenplay and it was like writer's rights. It was a big splashy sale for a lot of money. And it was in all the papers, the trade papers, um, like Variety and Hollywood Reporter. And people treated me kind of like an it girl, you know? Um, and so that was fabulous. And, you know, drinking went right along with that in my mind. I would drink all night. And in the day, I would write all day in my pajamas. And I was like a vampire. I would only go out at night. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, I, during that time, I finally began um, lying to my husband um, about how much I was drinking. I would hide wine bottles. Um, I would day drink. I would sometimes drive to the grocery store and day drink in my car. Um, I, and then I'd, I'd come home because I didn't want him to know I was day drinking. Then I would act like I was mad and I wouldn't kiss him so he wouldn't smell my breath. Um, so cut to the chase, mid thirties, I passed out as the maid of honor at my sister's wedding. So that was another like blackout situation from from social anxiety. And then I got pregnant at age 36. I had my baby at age 37. And I thought that would cure me. You know, like a lot of women think, you know, well, when I become a mama, I'll quit, I'll quit this, you know, like, um, but that didn't happen. Uh, my baby was, uh, he was at an emergency C-section, I had preeclampsia, I had trouble nursing. Um, and then my dad committed suicide um, when he was four months old my gunshot to the head and they never met. So I went from kind of like the postpartum baby blues, not severe depression, but definitely baby blues to um, being thrown into grief about the loss of my, my dad, sort of abandoned by him again, you know, and emotionally it feels like that. Hmm. And um, I, I continued self-medicating after I stopped, you know, I, I did pump and dump a little bit, but you know, um, that wasn't great, but I, I went back to fully drinking uh, when he stopped nursing. And um, then just shortly after, three months after my dad died, my, my first movie premiered, and it was a huge, humiliating bomb, which was a public trauma for me because I had loved my work, my screenwriting um, for 10 years. Um, I had worked to get to this point. And the movie was, you know, it wasn't great. It wasn't made really well. And it was the first time director and it wasn't what I really intended for it to be, but um, it was still very painful and I was still very fragile. Um, and so I went into some depression. Uh, I really didn't think I could survive my life without alcohol. And then my son was diagnosed with a rare form of scoliosis, which can be fatal in babies and young children. Uh, and uh, he, he was, if he had been treated in Los Angeles, he would his life would have been really ruined. He would be full height now at age 10. And uh, the surgeries are incredibly painful, deforming. When they do them on babies that young, it's, it's different than surgery done in, in high school, you know, because mm -hmm. they can only lengthen these, uh, these scoliosis rods for a certain number of times. And then they fuse and uh, there's a 100% complication rate. It's really bad. So um, we found through Google a treatment um, to save him at Shriners Hospital in Salt Lake City, Utah. And we went on a series of medical trips, uh, 22 medical trips, I believe, over nine years. 
And uh, he, he saved, but he, at the time, he was wearing a, a body cast down to his diaper, and he had to get full anesthesia every time um, he went into the OR, even though they didn't cut into his body. Um, they had to put the cast on under anesthesia. And so I could never hug my baby's skin without this plaster cast. And Aww. I was in constant fear for his future um, of, of suffering. I thought he'd be in pain, which was like my worst fear. Um, and so I, I was a really good mom, you know, and I was really, nobody at the hospital suspected that I had a problem. I was never drunk at the hospital. I mean, in a lot of ways, I was a really like amazing mother, to be honest. Um, and I threw myself into helping other children with this condition, which was how my blog got started. Um, and that was incredibly meaningful for me and still is. Um, but I, meanwhile, my, my drinking got worse, you know, especially in the evenings. Um, and sometimes, you know, drinking during the day as well hair of the dog, etc. Um, I was put on Lexapro for that depression. Um, and uh, I finally, one year after my dad's death, I, I started 12-step meetings. I went to AA um, about seven years ago, a little over seven years ago in the fall, October. And um, a couple months later, right before Christmas, I relapsed and decided to have a little wine because it was festive and it was like Christmas music was playing and I was alone and I lived near the mall so I thought I'll just walk to the mall and do a little shopping for Christmas and um, it turned into um, me going off my meds and the chemical cocktail of, of the Lexapro withdrawal and like drinking ar around the clock for four days I really went kind of insane like it was the worst mm. than ever it's what led to that 0.64 hospitalization. But during that time, I was arrested at the Grove Mall, which is an outdoor mall in LA, for drunk in public, for drunk walking, essentially, mm. which is a good laugh at meetings. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but it's, it's horrible. I was, and I was taken by the mall cops. They passed me to the LAPD, who incredibly brought me home, um, which I do think is a bit of white privilege, I have to say. Um, but they said that if they had taken me to the downtown jail, which is the jail for that area, um, I may not have been safe because it was near Skid Row and I would have not been in a, you know, a private cell, I guess. Um, I don't really know. But um, so that was amazing that they brought me home. But I, I bought a puppy. Did I mention that at the mall while I was drunk and like dropped it off? It was like a $1,500 puppy, left it at home, checked into a hotel. I was like inappropriately messaging with men who are not my husband, you know, which was totally unlike me and not behavior that I have ever exhibited before or since the Lexapro, interestingly enough, you know. Um, and so I was really not myself. It was like Dr. Jekyll and Ms. Heidi is what I say. Mm. Um, I ended up at the hospital for that. And that, that led to me finally going to rehab seven years ago. And um, I did stay in rehab for three weeks, but it, it didn't stick. It, it turns out my, my rehab director was a, an, a criminal and he's in prison now for life. Um, and uh, everybody said he was like God and this guru. So definitely research if you go to rehab. Um, it, it did some good things for me. You know, I did, um, I was separated from my substance, you know, and I did have Christmas and New Year's sober for the first time in many years. Um, and I did, my son and, and my son and my husband came to visit me. So I got to be with them on Christmas. We have beautiful pictures from this beautiful Malibu kind of like house in the mountains with sunsets. And it was kind of glamorous, you know. Um, but on the other hand, this guy turned out to just be, um, apparently he, he raped and drugged, you know, some of his patients, you know, mm. so it was like very, cow. very dangerous. I was actually in the hands of a very dangerous man, 
you know, in hindsight. But you didn't personally experience anything. No, not sexually. My, my, I felt a vibe, you know, how you feel a vibe. Um, Right. But my husband was texting him every day. His name's Christopher Batham. If you Google him, there's all kinds of stories. Um, There's also a thing that um, our friend, oh gosh, what's her name? Elizabeth Vargas, who's also sober. She did a a piece on him and I'm sure you can can see it on YouTube or bring it up on demand, you know? Um, But uh, he, he basically sent... He sent me a false bill for over $22,000 a year after I left the rehab and we had paid in full. So he was doing all kinds of insurance fraud and he was, it was a lot of things with money along with the, the sexual allegations. You know, I think he's really in prison for like 33 counts of like insurance fraud and stuff like that. So he was, he was doing terrible things. He was charging people's insurance who and uh and false charges false medical charges on their bills and things like that so and working with a vulnerable population of people who are at their most vulnerable like that's just that is criminal oh my god oh my god i was so vulnerable at that time i thought that my dad i mean i'm sorry wow that was such a freudian husband and I were going to get a divorce, you know, I mean, it was really, I was drinking at him. It was before he had gone to, um, Al-Anon and, and that really changed his behavior towards me, you know, because he was really trying to control me and that made me rebel because I have a, a rebellious side. Um, and so, uh, I don't know if that situation would have ever even happened. Um, but my, if my husband and I basically were, were at this point where I thought, well, maybe I'll move to Malibu and work for this guy. And the oh women, women yeah. assaulted worked for him, by the way. Or like, right. Yeah. Yeah. They were patients. In some cases, they were patients when it happened. In some cases, they were patients who were like working as like assistants, you know, like driving his car and, you know, things like that. He had an MO. He was, he was, I'm sure, a pattern. He was grooming people, I'm sure, to, yeah. Yes. And I think that also that most of the women... He targeted, and this is very, it's like the, it's like the scary, you know, grooming thing. He picked the most, most vulnerable ones. Yeah. Were often had been on, you know, heavier sort of illegal drugs, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. not that alcohol is a drug, of course, but you know, right. a lot of cases they've been on meth or heroin and that kind of thing. And, and that makes it harder for them to sort of testify against him because society tends to look upon that as, oh, they're a drug addict. And like, why should we believe them? You know? You know what I mean, which is totally, you know, all addiction is the same if you ask me. Yeah. Um, so. Okay, yeah. so Heidi, hold on. I need to hold on. There's oh, a please. lot here. <laughs> hold on. <laughs> okay. So we're at the point you're at the rehab. How, how long ago is this? You said seven years ago or? Yes, that was seven years ago. Uh, in I, I, my relapse happened in December, seven okay. years ago. Okay. And, and what? And then, so that, I, I basically had long periods of sobriety. I had chunks of sobriety after that. Uh, and I, and that's where a lot of the double life happened because I did have a lot go, of times when I was sober and even um, when I was drinking, able to kind of control it a little bit better, uh, I got off the Lexapro. So I was volunteering at my son's school. I was, 
you know, a loving mother. Um, I would look at it like I never got a DUI, like that thing happened because of the Lexapro, la, 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 you know. And um, what it finally came to was um, last year, um, over the holidays, I decided to drink again. No, I left out one little thing. Um, I did, uh, my, my husband and I had a financial blow up a couple of years ago. It was like almost four years ago now where I found, um, I found some debts that we, um, that I didn't know that we had. And so basically, um, it was a huge financial betrayal and we're still together. But at the time, uh, I, I got sober from that. I had relapsed and was secretly drinking and that got me sober. That really woke me up because it was about um, not losing my custody of my son, you know? Mm -hmm. And for me, I've noticed that, you know, sometimes we don't care about ourselves when we're, um, really sick with our drinking, but, uh, the line in the sand for me is always children. You know, I never drank and drove with children in the car. I never drank when I was having play dates of other people's children at our house. You know, I never drank at the school. Yes, I did drink at the school, but only at like parent events, (laughs) you know, type thing. And so not when I was volunteering. So I was able to kind of control it in this weird way and be responsible, but also in other ways it was completely out of control. Hey, Unruffled listeners, just popping in mid-show to remind you about our Patreon fundraising campaign. To date, we have produced almost two years' worth of content and have over half a million downloads. We can hardly believe it. If you like what you've been hearing and appreciate our weekly consistency, you can be a patron of this show for as little as a dollar an episode. To donate, please go to patreon.com backslash the Unruffled podcast. Thank you for your continued support of the show. Now back to it. That reminds me of, you know, how sometimes you hear in the rooms, you know, that everyone's going to love you until you can love yourself, you know, because I think that we, you're right. We, we often don't like ourselves. We hate ourselves. We don't think anything about ourselves. We don't think we're worth anything, but we do, but we, but we love, uh, you know, our children or our spouse or our partner, family members. And, you know, sometimes it's just that one little thing that can, that can pull us out. If we can hang on to that. Yes. It's like a moment of clarity as they say, you know, I guess I thought, you know, a lot of people do this and it's a dangerous game, which is, well, if something really bad happens, I'll stop, you know? And for me, somehow those hospitalizations weren't bad enough because it got better. And so there was, I was playing a very dangerous game of, you know, well, I haven't set the house on fire cooking, you know, in a blackout, you know, and at three in the morning, you know how we get hungry, <laughs> you know? Oh, I've had cooking. <laughs> yes, I've had, I've had extremely frightening cooking scares. Yes. Yeah. And that would happen. That would be, that's terrifying, you know, but my life overall, my son was happy. My son didn't even really know about drinking. I mean, my drink looked like water. It was like vodka mixed with LaCroix, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and a sweetener, like Truvia, you know, and it was, he didn't even he didn't really put together that I had a problem with alcohol. He didn't even really know what it was. And so in a way I kind of thought like, well, if he ever knows, like if he ever says to me, mom, you know, you need to stop drinking. Oh my God, I'll just never drink again. But as long as it was only hurting me, 
you know, I guess I felt that I could keep doing it, you know? And there was another reason. I felt that if I became sober as a writer, I would have to write about it. And I would be completely where I am now, which is being open and telling my story. And I, in a weird way, in a twisted way, I thought I didn't want the other moms to know. And so in a way, drinking kept me a secret drinker rather than a public non-drinker. If that makes right. sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the final thing was uh, our, our situation got better um, with the, our marriage, you know, after, and, and when it got better and my husband like sort of was not going to judge me for drinking again. And he was the only one who really knew I was doing it. Um, I went back to, I slipped back into secret drinking um, until, and that brings us up to the last relapse, which was 15 months ago on last Christmas, I didn't intend to, I was planning to on staying sober on my family Christmas uh, in New York with my, my family of origin. Um, but I was at my sister's new house um, in New York and I secretly drank for like three days until they finally noticed something was amiss. <laughs> right. My, my behavior changed and uh, finally I, I got in a fight with my husband uh, in a blackout. Um, after everyone had gone to bed and it woke up, humiliatingly, it woke up my sister and her husband, the hostess and her husband who, who shared a wall with us, the two bedrooms that we were in. Um, and I woke up the next morning with no memory of it because of course it's like, you know, your brain has been scooped out when you have a blackout. And my husband had to tell me that my entire family knew. Right. And that that was really um, a whole new bottom <laughs> for me. It was so humiliating. Um, and they held a little, um, I, I joke, a Christmas intervention, you know, my sisters and my mother. And in that, uh, my, my nephew, Jupiter, who I held as a baby, again, it's the kids. It's the kids who really get to me, you know, and um, he's 18 now, but he, um, I've known him his whole life. And I, he's the first baby that I loved, you know, that I was in our family. And he's, I haven't seen him cry and maybe since he was a small child and he started crying and he said, I'm, gonna, I'm afraid you're going to die. No, oh, Heidi. And no one has seen him cry, not even his mother in many years. And you could have heard a pin drop in that room. And it I was still, you know, a little bit buzzed. I still had some alcohol in my system. And I just was like, I knew, you know, I knew that was it. You know, that was the line in the sand. I was hurting the children now, you know. And the other children, thank God, didn't know that um about the fight or that it had happened. They had no idea because this house is massive it's like a mansion and they were like in another wing all asleep you know mm -hmm. um my sister's a the publisher of of, of uh in style magazine so she has like a fancy life so anyway um that uh that was it and i have i got sober shortly after that it took me i drank for like six days i believe it was six or seven days after that and i got sober new year's eve 2017 mm -hmm. yeah. So that's, that's where we are. <laughs> oh, Heidi, I got to see you shortly after your one year sobriversary. Yes. I oh mean, it was exciting. God. You had your, you were with your family, right? Again, to celebrate that one year, didn't you go on vacation? Yes, yes, yes. Um, I was, it, yeah, it's amazing. Um, my family's been so supportive and they, they're wonderful. They, they're so happy and they love me so much. And I'm such a lucky person, you know, mm -hmm. I'm really lucky. 
Well, how, did you jump back into the rooms again, or how did you how did you kind of hold on to your how did you tether yourself in the beginning? Oh, okay. So I I'll be honest. I didn't. I was not always honest in the rooms, you know, mm -hmm. and I didn't come clean right away. I had this huge fear of being judged, which also kept me from like sort of coming out sober. Huge fear of being judged. Um, I was afraid of being judged by other, you know, people in AA. And so um, I didn't tell everyone until for the first 30 days because I didn't want to raise my hand every day. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, I think that's okay. I just want to put that out there. You know, you do what you have to do. I mean, I, I'm not telling anyone else what to do, but for me, that, that was better for me, you know. And um, I told my my sponsor, I kept the same sponsor. She's, she's really more like a friend now, you know, to be honest with you. Um, but she's, she's amazing. She really helps, helps me with my marriage as well. And, um, and she, I told her and I expect fully expected her to drop me because she actually has said that she drops people if they relapse, which, you know, that's, that's a personal choice. Everyone has their choices. Um, mm -hmm. I have my own opinions on that. I, um, but however, um, she kept me because she loves me so much <laughs> and I love her. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's, it, but it was a completely different sobriety. I will ha absolutely say that I feel like we build upon our previous sobriety because I had two and a half years all put together before that. So I think you're right. I think we do build on it, but then I think we also, you know, when it, whenever it sticks, there's something different that you had yeah. um, usually that you have to do. You have to do something different, right? Yes. Yes. What I did different was I, um, I worked on my inner life, my, my cognitive um, and spiritual work in a whole new way. In addition to meetings, I added a whole mosaic or patchwork sobriety, as they say, and uh, I built a bigger community. For me, I needed a wider net, a wider safety net. Mm -hmm. And as I like to say, I could get sober in AA, and I love, I love my friends there, and I, I, it's absolutely helped save my life without a doubt. It was my foundation, but I couldn't, I personally couldn't stay sober with AA alone. The 12 steps I did three times and none of those times did I suddenly um, have no desire to drink ever again. You know what I mean? I didn't right. have like, a complete spiritual change from the 12 steps. It was great inner work, you know, and I highly recommend it. Um, but for me, there were other things that had to click in as I call it the click, you know, um, and uh, that includes, uh, it includes it, uh, Instagram, to be honest with you and, and podcasts and books and and really the, um, the cognitive inner voice work and spirituality, meditation, et cetera. Um, and I had to change my inner belief. It, it's really changing those deep inner beliefs about what, you, what drinking is for you and what it isn't and what you truly want in your life, you know? Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, thank you for sharing that because I think that's really important because, you know, not, many of us don't get at the first time, second time, third time. And I know that, that some women that, I mean, I just see them struggling and I just want to hug them because they just can't get it. And they, and they look around and, you know, when, when you look, when you're in these Facebook groups or you, and even sometimes in meetings, you know, you look around and you think, why is everybody getting this and I'm not? Um, yes. yes. That's, that's so, how I felt. Um, I felt, I saw so many people, including my own sponsor, by the way, um, who never drank again. They never relapsed. And a lot of times they don't um, sponsor people who do relapse because they don't understand it. 
you know? Oh, right, right. Mm-hmm. Because and, they didn't. So, yeah. Yes. And, yeah, so, and, that's, and that's not usually a judgment. That's just usually you only are a sponsor. You can share your experience. So if my experience is not relapsing, it's hard maybe for me to relate to someone who does. You know yes. what I mean? And that's yes. not to say I have, I have women that I sponsor. I don't have any rules about it, but it's hard to share because it's hard to empathize and go, I don't, I don't know. I don't have that experience to share back with you. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And that's why I, I feel so strongly about helping other women because I, I really get it. I, I know so many different versions of relapse. <laughs> I, I was, I, I'm writing a memoir and I, I was writing it while, during my relapses. So that's like sort of one of the interesting things about it because like, I have the perspective of that. And I know so many different ways that this, uh, this tricky thing works in your brain. You know, and so I have so much compassion and empathy for it because I deeply, deeply understand. Right. I think it's so beautiful that your family, though, spoke to you too, Heidi, and that you were surrounded by that. And I think, like, for me, what I hear sometimes in the rooms is like, we can be as willing as we want to be. Like, you could be willing. um, I've shared this before. You could be willing to go on a trip to Spain. You could be willing to wear a crown every day and call yourself a queen. You could be willing to you know, win the lottery, but if you're not ready, you're, it's not going to stick. It's not, you have to be ready. So you can be honest, open-minded and willing, but if you're not ready, that's like the, the fourth thing that you need. And sometimes people have to go out and drink a little bit more. I don't suggest it, but sometimes you do. That's what the book says. Like, you know, you yeah, yeah. That's what my sponsor said that I heard that come out of her mouth so often, you know, you just, she just had a few more drinks in her, (laughs) like, just like that, you know, and it's real matter of fact, you know, unfortunately, sometimes that can be, that can, you know, have a a giant cost to someone though. It can cost them their freedom. It could cost them their life even. Oh God. You know, honestly, it's, yes. You know, some people, they say, I just had to do more research, you know, drinking. I'll tell you what, um, it's ultimately, I truly believe uh, it's an inner decision. And it's like that Augustine Burroughs thing where it's like, uh, ultimately, pe- 100% of people who put down the drink um, and uh, who are sober, you know, or, you know, they, they just didn't drink. They just right. didn't do it. They just That's what they not. have in common. They just, <laughs> they they just didn't drink again, right? 100% of the time, you know? Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, it's, it's so much more simple than we actually make it, but not staying sober is simply feeling your feelings and not and making the decision not to drink for them, not to that, changing that cognitive thing that where that was your go-to move, you know? And, and once you do it, you build up that muscle, right? Build up the muscle. It's not the first thought you have, and it's not even the third thought you have. And you know what I mean? So it's, to me, it's, there's an inner decision that you have to make that no one else can make for you. No one can make someone else get or stay sober for, you know, for real, but you absolutely can love them through it and support them through it. And the thing is, I knew I needed to be sober or I should be sober (laughs) for so many years, you know, Um, but that wasn't enough because I didn't truly believe that it was a better life where I would be happier. I truly thought that I needed alcohol to be happy or to even survive my life. And I had to change that belief. And mm-hmm. if I that belief, I was never going to quote unquote get it. 
you know? Right, right. And you're right. You have to change that belief first. And then you have to go about doing the work of changing all the things in your life that you were drinking over. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's also believing you're capable. Right. You, know, you are capable. You, know, you can I, change those things. Exactly. Yes. You can yes. put up a boundary or you can, you know, say no, or you can say yes. I mean, you, you, you do have agency. Yes. And people judging you does not kill you, you know, and your feelings won't kill you. And right. you know, honestly, in the end, none of it matters. None of that matters. What matters is your relationship with yourself and your source, you know, and that channel, uh, uh Tammy just said, uh, I'm just a channel to God or, you know, or, yes, or told me, yeah. I mean, that is so beautiful. That really resonated with me, uh, uh that, you know, and, and I, it doesn't, I'm spiritual. I would call myself more spiritual than religious, you know, but my, my base faith, um, was Christian, you know, as a child and, uh, and I say God and, and, you know, but also he source the universe. I think it's all, all one, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when on your deathbed, it's not going to care if the other moms, you know, thought you had a problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. <not> exactly. <laughs> it, that's a very good point. You are not going to care less what people think about you. No. And, you know, I, I've experienced so much support and that's what you hear. I'm sure there might be judgment that I haven't heard of. You know, people are always going to judge you. They judge you anyway, you know. No matter what you do. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so you might as well just be a channel for, for love. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like the judgment is really who's judging us the harshest is ourselves. I mean, that's what we're doing. Right. And that's why we keep drinking because we think we're not worth anything. And we think that, um, you know, we're going to be found out. I just found that like when I told the truth on myself and I just kept doing that again and again and again, first to my doctor, then to my husband and then to a couple girlfriends and then at a meeting, like the more I did it, I became addicted to that, like to telling yeah. the truth and being like, that feels like it's, um, it's relieving me of something. And I find now that when I work with other women or when I'm talking with other women in recovery, like if we just tell the truth and just whatever happens, happens. And now I can deal with it. But before I thought I could never hack it. I thought I could never possibly, you know, I, I, my native language was fibbing and lying and, to, you know, keeping secrets. So you have to change that native language, I think. We, I lied to everyone, especially to myself, all to protect my drinking, you know, because mm -hmm. I thought that I, I needed it or I would die, well, but it was actually killing me. So it was a complete lie, you know, mm -hmm. but the truth is, yeah, telling the truth is it does lighten you and telling being, being open and authentic with your story, ultimately, if you ever want to do that, and not everyone has to do that, it may not be the best thing for their life, you know, I don't live in a small town where I have to deal with that, that might be a thing, you know, or for your job, or, or whatever, you, whatever is right for you, you know, but for me, you know, somebody from D.A.R.E., like D.A.R.E. to keep kids off drugs, was like outside my grocery store recently, and they were like, have you heard of D.A.R.E.? And I was like, I'm sober. <laughs> <laughs> you, you guys, so funny, Heidi. I did the same thing about a year ago. <laughs> I know. I find I just vomit it right out. Like, I don't drink, so awesome. High five. Oh, my God, I'm such a freedom. I feel so free. <laughs> I wasn't invited to his wedding because of my drinking. I mean, that's like a true thing, which was horrible. And he has come to me since and apologized and said, I was wrong. You know, he's now divorced from that 
woman who was 20 years younger. But anyway, um, he, he, I went to his birthday party and uh, I saw all these old friends and oh my gosh, it was just like, I, I love talking about it, you know? I mean, every time you talk about it, you, people are like, you look so good. And like, uh, you know, your skin looks better. Right. Better. I mean, We're like, our spirit looks better. You know, and, and, don't, and, and I was going to say, don't you find, you, you probably wouldn't even have to say a word about your drinking, but people would notice that there was something different about you. Yes. And I also, I just recently became a vegan too. And they're like, oh my God, and you're a vegan. (laughs) I I do that too. I'm like, what else can I cut out of my life? What else can I change? It's like change begets more change. You inspired me. And and that was, and ritual inspired me also. Um, But I, that it's, it's about, it's really for me, it's a whole thing of waking up, you know, to the planet and like to compassion you know, and, and also health and it's all about, you know, health. And if my whole spirit is like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know I could feel this good, you know? Right. Cause we think we, we think it's going to be so awful. It's, it's so funny and ironic about, I mean, it is, it is awful in the beginning. I'm not going to say it's all lovely at the beginning. It's hard. Yeah. Um, but there's so much that opens up if you're open to it. And, um, and if we can talk about ritual for a minute more, I'd love that. Really. <laughs> oh, nice, nice, easy segue there. Uh, Let's just hover here for just a second, Heidi. Okay. So everyone knows that's listened to the New Year's episode, everyone. Um, but when I met you to go see Rob Bell and Elizabeth Gilbert, I was so excited to see you again. Um, and I knew when I woke up that morning that I was going to meet Ritual that night. Like I had this premonition. I was like, oh, they're friends. They've been on each other's podcasts. He lives in LA. He might be at this event tonight. So I guess I really didn't manifest it so much. But um, you did. But, but when you were there and when we walked into the gig, can you tell like what you did? Because you're so awesome. Oh, uh, so this is, so you don't have to be drunk to be bold, right? not if you're Heidi Ferrer. <laughs> I, I'm really, so I'm really shy actually, but I, I, I walked, um, we walked in. I'm so thank It was so wonderful to, to be with you. And that was really special for me. Um, so we walked in and he happened to be, there was kind of like a bar. Um, it was it's like an outdoor space and then there's sort of like a bar that has like an open wall and then there's the theater which we were going into and, and he was standing in there he's sober too of course and um, famously and uh, I suddenly noticed it with him and I knew you know that you're that you you had some appreciation for him and uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my imaginary boyfriend appreciation I like yeah. that very yeah. diplomatic of you to try to save my marriage right now <laughs> <laughs> Well, I haven't seen I haven't seen him for a while. We shot a movie called Minnie's First Time that my husband wrote and directed, and it's very dark. It's like a Lolita story. It's like a, a sort of wait. What's it called? So, what's it called? I gotta write this down. It's called Minnie's First Time. Minnie, like mini skirt apostrophe S first time. Okay. And uh, it's it it actually um oh anyway it was a lot it was years ago but we shot it in his Calabasas house which is where he still lives um, with his lovely wife. And, I'm uh, googling this right now. No, <laughs> go ahead. And oh, if you watch the movie, I'm in it. I play Jeff Goldblum's call girl. Oh, awesome! <laughs> so yeah, that was another lifetime. That was yeah, a great mom. <laughs> um, and so anyway, uh, so we we walked in night, and I said, "Oh, I think that's your troll." And uh, you said, "You know, yeah, I think it is," or something. I said, "Do you want to meet him?" And because I just thought to myself, you know, with like a crowd of people. 
if we were all leaving after the theater, you know, was over after the, the event, we may not run into him. You know, he could just get lost in the crowd. And sometimes you just have to seize the day and seize the moment. Mm-hmm. Well, I, right. I mean, <laughs> I'm just going to interject one thing. I have lost, uh, you know, I've changed a lot of things, but impulsivity is still something that, uh, <laughs> That I embrace. <laughs> I can't get together with you and Heidi at the same time. The world will explode. Ooh, I don't yes, absolutely. absolutely. Wear your pink dress that you wore to Shira. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, got it. <laughs> okay. So, so you so, grabbed Debbie <laughs> and said, let's go. Here we go. So she said, she said, you know, yeah. You said the yes or something. And I said, okay, well, let's go. And so we just walked over there. And um, I actually kind of interrupted him, which I felt a little bit badly about. In hindsight, I was like, because he was talking to somebody. He was talking, a couple of people were standing there. But I just thought, you know, this is like maybe it, the only chance. And he was very gracious, and he, he spoke to us. And I just reminded him that um, of my husband's name, because, you know, Nick was the director, so he was the one who, like, rented the house with the production, you know. And they've, they've been in contact since then and stuff, like they email and text. So um, anyway, and then you met him, you touched him. Right. Go ahead. You, you tell yourself. <laughs> well, my hand has never been the same since. But um, yeah. Well, I I freeze up to meet famous people sometimes. I, she recovers. I felt very emboldened to just go chat away with Amy Dresner and Sarah Blonde, and I was fine with that. But meeting my imaginary boyfriend was different. So um, I I think we, I just said hi. I couldn't even say anything, and he just shook my hand, and he had the softest, most velvety hand, which I was very surprised by. And um, that was that. Well, that he was did, that. he's not a carpenter or anything. So. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought from his weightlifting maybe or something. I just really, I don't know. I don't know why he lifts weights. He doesn't. He's a swimmer and a runner. It doesn't right. matter. And yeah, but when we went inside, we sat in a row and uh, he was in my, our row. He was. Yeah. And I was trying to take like a picture and I'm such a lame ass at that. So I was like, okay, I, I cannot be caught taking, trying to take a picture, secret stealth picture um, of ritual. But um, remember, <laughs> do you remember the guy that was in our row that was drunk next to us? Oh my gosh. We had a guy. We didn't, you haven't really told the story on the show. No. show. Uh, uh-huh. We had this guy right next to Tammy who was literally falling his head kept drooping into her lap and he was like, I don't know if he had narcolepsy or something, but he kept falling. He might've been drunk or drugged, you know, which is yeah. what we thought it most likely was. Cause it was New mm-hmm. Year's day, you know, and there was a bar, yada, yada, yada. But <laughs> so he kept falling like literally like hundreds of times. Yes. Like once, you know, and then he would like wake up and then, <laughs> like drowsily, like kind of like look around and then he would suddenly droop back into your lap and you poured. I felt so, so annoyed. Oh, no. I was so annoyed because I'm writing because the, the lights are on in the theater a little bit. And I'm taking all my notes and I'm just really enjoying uh, the trifecta of Rob Bell, Elizabeth Gilbert and Rob uh, Ritual on my right. Yeah. And then I had my bevy of beautiful ladies on my left, right? <laughs> Sober ladies. And so I get up to go to the bathroom and I, I tell someone. And I said, hey, the guy next to me, this seat, he keeps, um, I, he's really drunk, I believe, or um, he's snoring. And he's nodding off and almost hitting me every single time. It's hard to concentrate. So then I go into the bathroom and there's a girl throwing up in the sink. And I'm like, you know what? This is so bizarre to me because in my old life, I don't think I would have paid too much attention or it would have been fodder or it would have been, I was kind of, and I was like, okay, get recentered, Tammy, calm down. So I, I tell them also, I'm like, there's a lady in the bathroom we need to check on. 
Yeah. They were like, okay, all right. But they never moved him. They never moved him. I think he would have found my elbow in his ribs. (laughs) Poor Heidi. Did you just check from Heidi? We didn't do it. We didn't do it. Actually, we, Tammy, finally, luckily, there was a, another chair. So we, you moved and then we put our coats on that chair that he was dripping in. But then I, I was, it was me, then the coats, then him. And so in my peripheral vision, I just watched him like drop into our coats like a thousand times. Yes, it was, it was like, you had to try to stay super focused on what was happening on the stage, which was easy to do because weren't they just yeah. lovely and awesome and wild? Oh, I love them. I love well, them so I don't know if you guys, if you guys remember me telling my Rob Bell story, but there was a drunk guy at our at, at when I saw right. Rob Bell too. Isn't that weird? That's weird. It's kind of a weird place that I went on, but. Huh? <laughs> Maybe it's the, God, it's the God stuff. Like people can't handle it. It's like, oh. Right, yeah. <laughs> right? My wife. I want to be in touch with God, but not really. <laughs> well, you, that started off my year, even with the drunk guy, I was like, okay, that's, I'm not going to obsess about that because all of the other good things that were happening that night with connection, some unruffled listeners, um, Heidi had a, a, an important anniversary. Another friend of ours had a important sober um, anniversary, um, rituals in the house. So, I mean, hello, I just, it couldn't get any better. Oh so. yeah, for sure. It's like that, <laughs> that small potatoes compared to all the beauty. Um, and also it was a good, what, what, a, what an in your face room reminder of, of why not to get drunk, you know, right? Yeah. I think, like, yeah. Uh, there it was. <laughs> Message received. <laughs> yeah. I've been that annoying girl sitting next to you. Yeah, I'm sure. Not maybe nodding off. Well, maybe. Who knows? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just really fun. And I think that's the thing when I was driving home that night, because I, I was getting a little anxious about going there that night and driving the freeways and Heidi and me, just the parking structure thing. Like we just, I found my little uh, connection with Heidi to really keep me grounded that night and keep me um, calm. And you Heidi, you to drive all by yourself on the freeways on New Year's <laughs> Day. You drove a long ways and in the dark, you know. Yeah, was- it was empty. It was like the freeways were just like wide open for me that night. It was it was wonderful and found everything. It was easy peasy. Um, but I got to hear more about you and your work and not, and not at length because we didn't, we didn't have that much time before the event, but reading the bio that you sent over and the things that you've done, I, I did not know, um, that your, uh, spec screenplay was for the, the series, the C word. Right? Oh, actually, um, it was before I had the title first. <laughs> okay. Okay. But before the, C, the series, the C word, although that was a good series. I liked okay. it. Okay, but it was yours. Yeah, you it was spec. Yeah, it was a spec screenplay, romantic comedy. I would say it was sort of in the in the vein of sort of a Sex in the City feel, but it was mm-hmm. before Sex in the City show came on the air. So mm-hmm. it was like right around that time. It was young people dating in their twenties, cocktail culture, and uh, it was about really a, 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 a serial womanizer who was like the ultimate like bad boy, and um, and he's being he, he sort of you know, he hurt four women and they bring another woman into their group who's like the ultimate man-eater. And she's like writing a book, how to how to break a heart before breakfast without breaking a sweat. And, uh, <laughs> and so she like goes to bring him down. So it's like the, the, the woman and the man head to head. And of course they fall in love, you know. Um, but that was like back when romantic comedies were like really hot. And it sold, it was, I had, I had only a high school education and I had, um, not, not only did I not go to college, I didn't have any training as a screenwriter. I was self-taught. I was just going to ask you that because, um, yeah, that's just, I, I mean, I just wonder, you live in LA, so you automatically are a screenwriter <laughs> or, or did you just, I don't know, feel brave and you, that's just something you wanted to take on? Yeah, I was, um, 
I have a, a natural affinity for writing. And my sister told me as a, as a young girl that I, oh, you're a writer, you know? And in my mind, I didn't think writing was a glamorous profession at all. And we were a theater family. My father was a theater professor. And so we grew up doing plays and doing like the children's parts in the plays. And so I was all about acting, you know? And uh, so I thought that I was gonna be an actress. I moved out to LA. I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts when I was 18. And, uh, and I was, you know, so poor and like working hand to mouth, no, no car insurance, no health insurance. And I, I heard the screenwriters made, made really good money. <laughs> and I was auditioning for parts that were written so badly that I just thought one day I could write this. You know, like people are getting paid to write this. And so, um, you know, like everyone else, I tried to write a screenplay and I just became, um, I became, uh, you know, very um, driven, driven to do it. So I wrote them for about four years before I sold my first one. But I had a lot of, um, I was self-taught. I went to, there was like a, a screen, a screenplay library here. Now you can all get them, a lot of them online. So back then you had to go and read like a hard copy. So I studied romantic comedies. I trained myself, you know, mm -hmm. in a way it's kind of like my education um, in my, my second sobriety. A lot of it is self-taught. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but so yeah, I sold it for three against six, so 300,000 against 600,000 to big Fox studios. 20th Century Fox, and it was very exciting because I was really like a nobody. I was 27 years old. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's exciting. So that was fun. That's a fun story. Yeah, and I had a career um, for over 10 years writing screenplays um, and TV. Um, and I was even invited to work on Sex in the City, but I mean, I, I had an opportunity, but I didn't want to move to New York. Well, so is it that kind of thing where if you if you get one screenplay bought, then you're kind of in, and then opportunities start to arise writing opportunities yes I, yes that type of sale was like people loved that script and so you become kind of like famous within this small community of the people who read screenplays and work in production producers and their development people basically and uh you just get a whole lot of meetings everybody wants to meet you and they're super flattering and it just feels amazing <laughs> <laughs> wow. and so then i i wrote i sold other spec screenplays that a lot most things that sell are, are never made to be honest with you mm -hmm. You can have, make a lot, uh, you can have a big career, uh, meaning like you can buy three houses and never have a movie made. It's really right. That's so that's so crazy to me. Yeah. I mean, I noticed that because when you hear about authors books getting optioned all the time and then, but you never, ever rarely see them actually come to the screen. Yeah. Yes, very rarely it all it, it's called development hell and things get you know there are too many cooks is like the short way to put it like there are a lot of people that like everybody wants to put their stamp on it everybody wants to change it and and a lot of times it gets diluted or messed up and then it just never happens you know right. um but uh but it's 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 nice work if you can get it you know it's a really good career um it's definitely more male dominated there were i was proud because there were way less female screenwriters and i was a, a, a female working um and also i sold something before my husband went to princeton university and a lot of our friends were ivy league um people that i knew through him and a lot of them were trying to write screenplays and i was the first one to sell one <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> hollywood doesn't care you know like it's it's, it's really um, about the material. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? It's also being in the right place at the right time. You know, you have, it, it, at that sure. time, it just caught fire, you know? Right, so. right. It's a mixture of things. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. 
So how, how do you carve out that time now to write and to do things in sobriety? Like, do you, are you, um, are you a ritual person? Are you a person that has to sit down at your turquoise desk and like, that's the place or can you do it anywhere? How do, how do you yeah, work? I'm a sit down at my turquoise desk person for, for yeah. my creative work. Absolutely. But, um, you know, we always create, um, like taking walks, like think, you know, thinking things through and stuff like that. Um, what I need to do more is do all my work in the mornings because I tend to get up and get going. And then, you know, you know how the day can go by and then suddenly it's five o'clock and you don't have quite like the, the same inspiration. So oh, yeah. I, I need to do, start more of a routine, but um, I'm a much faster writer than I used to be. So what used to take eight hours, I can do in two. You know what I, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. the writing part, the creative part, I have to be honest, is the easiest thing for me. Um, it's very natural. Just flows. All of the technical stuff and the business side is like nowhere. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> I'm with you. Heidi, you told me your word for the year. Can you share with our listeners what your word for the year is? Oh, it's so funny. I, but my word for the year was hustle because mm-hmm. I felt that I had lost so much time um, in my drinking and, and recovering from drinking, you know, that uh, I wanted to, I just didn't want to waste any more time. You know, I heard Robert Downey Jr. say that when he got sober. He said, I just don't want to waste any more time you know, and, uh, that I think that's a thing with a lot of us. I see the spark of people just doing, and including y'all, your, your shining stars to me are just doing incredible things that make sobriety look good. You know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we try, right. Cause it it is good. I mean, it is so much better. And in the creative, um, realms that, that we all work in and our listeners that are obviously listening because there's like a spark probably in them as well, I would imagine. And like, I think what did, I think Elizabeth Gilbert said that night we saw her is that she feels like her job is giving um, permission slips is like a big part of her job. And I feel like, I hope that we're doing that too, that we're giving permission slips to women to say like, yes, go, go write that blog, go make that video, go sew a beautiful garment, go, go, cook something that's beautiful and take a photo of it and share it like whatever it is whatever you're whatever or or dress up and take a photo of it for the 100 day project hundred <laughs> percent you're giving you are giving people permission permission you know you absolutely are i mean you are saving lives and i i think just simply by the example of living your life you're doing the work right know? that's the attraction rather than promotion part of it, part of recovery. I like seeing strong, beautiful, sober women in recovery, all women really, but in recovery, it really kind of is a, is like a a beacon for me to follow. I'm going, okay, thank you. I can do that too. It is. You know, the thing is that's funny is we think that it's going to be suffering to be sober, but it's so much more suffering to stay drinking and recovering. That, that cycle is torture. It's so true. It's so true. But I never would have believed you when I was drinking. I never would have believed you. Only in hindsight can I can I truly know that that is absolute absolutely true. Yes, it's so it because it's a it's a trap and a loop like in your own brain. And of course, a lot of it's like the neuroscience and and the nature of addiction. You know, but the farther you get away from it, the more you look back and you're like, I can't believe I bought that. I can't believe I bought into that, that belief system, 
mm-hmm. because it's so it's such a lie it's so not right you know I feel I, I know the saying is perhaps a little overused but I do feel like I woke up like I do feel when people say they're woke I don't think I ever used that phrase for me but it makes sense to me I have woken up to my life yeah I got no time to waste yes <laughs> you and know it's, I'm it's ready it's not that it's all, there's never a bad day or that you never, you know, it's, it's not that you never feel terrible or have negative thoughts, you know what I mean? Or be uncomfortable. We were talking, Tammy and I were talking about this earlier. I'm uncomfortable all the time. Yeah. You know, I have, I'll find myself, I mean, I think of myself as, as a light, (laughs) but I also will be driving in traffic and have a very negative thought about another driver. It doesn't mean that I have, I'm perfect because I'm sober, <laughs> you know, I'm not perfect, but I have the tools to recognize that I'm doing that, you know, and it's, it's having those tools is, is everything because all of this spirituality is a daily practice and sobriety is a daily practice or recovery is a daily practice, you know? Um, and, but it's not something that has to be like a horribly painful grind, you know, it's, um, we have the tools and they're, they're always there. Yeah, right. for sure. <clears throat> well, um, Heidi, tell us about your blog a little bit. You have a blog called girl to mom. And I think it's like kind of evolved and changed as you have. Is that right? You've had it for a long time. Yes. I've written it since, uh, late 2010, I think was my first post when I was like around well, 40 or something like that. Um, I'm almost 49. Um, yeah, I started writing girlsmom.com because somebody asked me to um, share my story on another mom's blog, um, and it was it was the story about Bexin, my son's scoliosis, and uh, that became like one of the most popular stories on their website, and it got just tons of comments. And so I thought, oh, you know, I should. I'm a writer, geez, you know, I guess I should get one of these blogs and you know, start writing his continuing story because his story was ongoing to help other people. And I was very much, it was, it was like a part-time job, at least for me to do, um, to try to save other children like him because children were falling through the cracks and getting the wrong medical advice, you know? And so, so that's where it started. And as he got better and other things happened in my life, it evolved into humor. Um, some of it, when I look back, I really cringe because I was drinking when I was writing the blog and some of those are still up, you know, and I get really hooked. And, but now it's evolved more into, I really care about recovery, um, spirituality, wellness and health and nutrition, you know, and, uh, and also just, you know, all things, all things health, health for the world. Um, and so, uh, and helping other people. Um, so this is definitely, you know, one of my causes or my, my primary cause now besides being a mother. So now it's more of a recovery blog, I would say. Um, and, uh, and and yeah, it's, it's been an evolution. You can really, I can really see it (laughs) when I look back. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But that's what a blog is for. I think a lot of our listeners, I think you, Sandra and I talked about this early on about a creative outlet and starting a blog is a great way to kind of get your words out. I, I always felt like I was depositing them, you know, safely somewhere. I don't need it as much as I used to need it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've taken a small break from it because I realized writing caused me such anxiety. Um, but um, but it, I still like that it's there. It's like I got it out of my body so that I could move on. And yes. I think it's imp- it's an, a really important tool for people. Um, and, and I think, Sandra, too, writing on Medium, right? People can self-publish on Medium. Sure, and yeah. And there's just something magical about kind of putting it out into the world because it'll resonate probably with someone. 
Yeah, somebody's going to read it that needs to. And, you know, you can always do that anonymously as well. You can, there's tons of blogs being published without, you know, no one knowing who the owner is. You could publish anonymously on Medium too. You could just get a, like a a new, a separate email address and just put up a different, you know, name or or a photo or avatar if you wanted to. You absolutely could. Mm -hmm. You know, I think every time we share our story, we're helping someone else. I really do. I think the the more the better and the, we need all of our voices, you know, because your voice is going to be specific to someone out there who's suffering, you know, that's right. My case, you know, some people might um, think, you know, be not, not relate because I had blackouts and, you know, and, and had, and had some, you know, passing out dramatic, you know, situations. However, um, or if they never relapse, for example, they might be like, Oh, you know, but other people are going to be like, Oh my gosh, like, me too. You know, she gets me and she understands. And, yeah. and that's why we all, we, all of our stories are so important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. That's um, right. So I, I know we're getting towards the end and I just can't let this interview end without asking you a little bit about this. Um, and feel free to tell me, I don't feel like talking about that, but sure. you've mentioned your husband a few times throughout the episode and, um, and that he went to Al-Anon. Um, have you found that, I mean, just in a, I'm not asking any specifics um, out of respect for him, but have you found that helpful for you to know that your spouse understands you or gets you in that way? Yes. You know, I'll say, I just want to mention that my, my son Bexon, his scoliosis is almost cured and he's doing amazingly. He's really mm-hmm. a miracle. So since I mentioned his health condition, I just wanted yeah. to I'll leave it hanging. Um, yeah. But my yeah. husband, um, doesn't go very often anymore. You know, he kind of goes for like the same reason I go to AA now, which is more just like he has friends there and community and just to that touchstone, you know? Um, but, um, honestly, uh, it completely changed the way that he treated me. Um, Mm. was really trying to control me and control my drinking and, and Al-Anon, you know, someone described it as God's a great Al-Anon, you know, um, God, you can, there's a liquor store right across the street. God's not going to stop you from walking in there and getting a bottle of scotch. Do you know what I'm saying? So Al-Anon kind of is supposed to, you know, not there. You're not supposed to tell someone else what to do. You detach with love is the way they put it. Mm-hmm. And that actually changed. It, it made, it put, made me safer because when I was drinking in anger against him, trying to control me and re- sort of rebelling, mm-hmm. um, that's what nearly killed me in a lot of ways, you know, right. go and be in a mall. Somehow I went to malls. I don't know why it was malls. I feel safe in malls, but um, <laughs> pass out in malls. <laughs> and let's go shopping. You know? Oh, I love you, Heidi. Blow out, well, you know? <laughs> well, and you know, I absolutely identify with that. I cannot, t- I mean, I, if if my husband even even tried to like if he would even start forming the sentences as some cr- criticism against me and what I was drinking or doing or sneak I would just I mean the steam would just start physically just coming out of my nose oh, yeah. um, and I yeah and I would just be like okay you just wait you just wait. Uh, now I'm not going to stop tonight. <laughs> yeah. It's, I know it's so silly, right? Oh my God. Uh, yeah. 
No, yeah, it's, it's right. It's drinking the poison and expecting somebody else to die. You know? oh, it's so, so it's so self-destructive. Do you know what? I found out that I'm a questioner and a rebel, you know, that qui- there's a quiz, but I think it's Gretchen. Rubin. Uh-huh, yeah. I'm, the re- I'm a rebel as well. Yeah. But, but I'm, I think I'm primarily a questioner with some rebel. And the thing is my rebel would come out during that. But my questioner is the reason why I believe it was difficult for me to stay sober easily in AA because People who follow directions right from the beginning and do everything they're told, those, the people pleasers do really well in a <laughs> Right. And I'm not, you know, I, I, I know. I question, I question things. That was yeah. me. I'm the people pleaser. I'm the upholder. So if I say I'm going to do the 12 oh. steps, I'm going to do with them. And right. Them. Yeah. Right. So I think that's really interesting. And so that, I think that that, the rebel, the trying to control someone, people will just cut you out of their life. Because alcohol has that strong of a pull, you know, mm-hmm. if you, you try to draw the line. Um, and so it's actually um, to be loving and supportive and let them know you're there um, and to give them the tools. You can, you can put a, you know, you can put a big book in by <laughs> somewhere where they might find it. I mean, you can definitely give them resources, you know, mm-hmm. and, sh- and most of all, like my family did say, hey, we're worried about you. We love you. Right. Because that's the truth. You know, exactly. It's like, I'm here for you. I love you. What can we do to support you? You know, all of those things are helpful. And, and, you know, you're right. You, you, but shaming, you can't shame anyone into quitting drinking. No, Um, not. They've shamed themselves more than you ever could, you know? Right. And, and deep inside, I loved myself I very much. And it's that, you know, there's the expression, I heard it from Anne Lamott, you know, the piece of shit the world revolves around. Which is- oh, I love that because that was me too. I was the biggest piece of shit in the center of the universe. Yeah. And I, I loved myself. And I, I think that, my, you know, my God never left me, even in my lowest moments. You know, I, I, I believe that God never leaves us. And, and who you truly are, your light never goes out. Your light is there. But sometimes it just feels really dark and feels like you can't see it, you know, but it's always there. It's always there. And, and so that, I think alcohol uh, kind of blurs and even can block your connection to your, your source, you know, sure. and it's that what, that's what can kill you. It's separating the separation of Mm -hmm. you from the the source of love and, and the connection is what we need to, to stay alive and be happy, you know? Right. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Well, <clears throat> real quick, before we get to your three things in your Unruffled Toolbox, Heidi, tell us about your um, your YouTube channel. I know some things have changed, but you were publishing these really great little short videos called The Click. Can you tell us about those? Thank you. I'm very proud of those. Um, there are four of them, and uh, they're, they're about recovery. And uh, the, what I call the click was, which for me was the thing that finally clicked in to help me stay sober and, and want to live a truly happy, sober life as I am now. Um, and so I met someone through, actually through my husband, Nick. Um, they know each other through squash, which is a sport. And uh, he was starting, he's in recovery as well. Uh, he goes to smart meeting, smart recovery. And um, we, he was starting a recovery channel and he knew how to make these videos and he he needed you know help creating content and so I wrote my videos and I host them and uh, after a few months of doing it I love I love them uh, he decided to he got in contact with smart um, to brand as like part of 
with their name, their brand name, you know? And since I'm not in smart recovery, and by the way, no, all love to smart recovery. If you're in smart recovery, it sounds really good from what I've heard. I haven't been to one of their meetings, but I mean, um, I think they're not, they don't do the spiritual thing is, is the gist of it that I get. Um, so um, it's more uh, cognitive, but AA is cognitive behavioral therapy too. Um, so anyway, um, they have way less meetings, and so it's more difficult to find them, as I understand. But they were using my videos um, on their, um, to show on their online meetings, which is a, an honor and, you know, a beautiful thing. And so he wanted to brand with them, and it became a complicated thing for me because um, I'm, I'm starting my own program, and I didn't want it to be misleading that I was affiliated with them, you know? Um, and I just, it got complicated. So, um, he asked if I wanted him to take the videos down and I said, Oh, I don't think that's necessary. But then he said that I could have them if I wanted them, you know, and which is gracious. And so I, I put them up on my, I just put them up last week and I haven't even told anyone. I think I changed the links on my blog, but, um, they're on my own YouTube channel, which has like no views and no subscribers because nobody knows about it till now. <laughs> well, well, tell our listeners how they can find yeah. that. Yeah. Call her, which is also my Instagram handle. It's R-E-C, oh wait, R-E-C-O-H-E-R. -E so you forgot the V. R-E-C-O-V. Like with her. H-E-R, right. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to spell. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so they're up there and for, if, if for anyone they can help. And if you want to just go there and uh, pick your toenails while it plays and just go do something. <laughs> support either way, even if you've seen them already. <laughs> but they're short, they're short and sweet. I should say too. They kind of, they're short and sweet. They get to the point. Yeah. Um, they're really, they're really great. And plus yeah, you can see, one see on, the beautiful glowing Heidi. Yeah. There's one on uh, mom, mommy wine culture and uh, that, that whole thing. And um, there's one on alcohol fantasy versus reality. You know what we think it is versus you know some of the dark dark things it really does to our lives and uh there's the introductory one about what the what the click is about my definition of it and uh and they're they're all about you know sobriety um being a better life oh and there's also one about how alcohol affects your hormones which is really interesting i researched that and it was very very interesting to me because it affects men's hormones as well as women particularly uh, with binge drinking and your sexuality. So interesting. Well, we can check that out. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, oh, Heidi, we could probably talk for a few more hours like we do here, okay. but we gotta, <laughs> I know we got to wrap it up. So, but um, let's do this part, the part of our show where we share um, some items from your unruffled toolbox, three items that help yes. you kind of either creatively or in terms of your recovery and sobriety, like what's your, what's your go-to tools um, right now? Okay. So mine are pretty simple. Um, all the truest things are simple in the end. Um, meditation, which is, you know, as I've mentioned, connect, connecting with source. And I do, my favorite currently is spirit guide meditation. And uh, that I, I have a, I have a blog on that on my blog. Um, but also uh, I, I read about it in a book by Ainsley McLeod called the instruction. And, uh, it's, uh, I connect with my spirit guides, which are kind of like, I guess the same word would be angels. Um, and it makes me feel like they're telling me, you know, what to do. I get, I get intuition from it mm -hmm. basically. So it's connecting with your intuition 
uh, in a more sort of wired in um, higher way, I guess is the best way that I can put it. It's so hard to describe spiritual things. Yeah. Uh, but also uh, nature and nature walks. Um, I love to walk outside and I listen to podcasts sometimes or sometimes I just, you know, put my hand on a tree. I love to walk near the beach. We live near the beach. No, we don't live right on the beach, but it's a short drive. And uh, we walk in the mountains and, but just being outside, you know, even in my own neighborhood, it's beautiful. And uh, connection is my third one with other sober people. Um, through online, I, I feel a real connection. Um, I feel a connection with you right now. I, I feel a connection listening to podcasts, even though technically I'm not, you know, <laughs> even I'm just listening. I, that is a yeah. connection for me. I've gotten so much from your show and, and other shows that I've listened to. Um, for me also, books on sobriety, blogs, um, in-person you know, in -person support groups, uh, and my sober, you know, sponsor or mentor friends. And I'm in a sober book club that I just went to um, last Sunday as well. So I really respond to the power of story. So however stories are told, uh, it really gets into my cells. Mm, I love that. Well, thank you, Heidi. And I think your new tagline for your whatever, your, um, maybe you could put this somewhere. You don't have to be drunk to be bold. Like that's your new, <laughs> that's <the> new <laughs> Heidi-ism. I love it. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Coined a new little phrase for you. Yes. I love it so much because yeah, you're living a big, bold, beautiful life. And I think that's why we wanted to have you on the show because you just radiate positivity and, um, when we met you, it was like, I'd already known you, you know what I mean? Like you are very much in alignment. And I think coming out sober and being able, sometimes writing secret blogs are great as a way in, but when we can align ourselves and not have to have a double life, because I had a double life before when I was drinking. So I didn't want a double life when I was sober. And I think what you've done and what I've witnessed you doing is just becoming into alignment with yourself. And it just, it shows, it really shows Heidi. So thank you. It, 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 it reverberates in every cell in your body and it really changes you. And it's, it's such an honor to know the both of you. I'm, I'm really um, honored to know you because I want everyone to know that when I walked up and introduced myself to y'all mm -hmm. and she recovers, you are absolutely just as beautiful and kind in person as you are on your show. So you're, you're mm -hmm. the and thank you so much. Oh, so Love you. Yeah. I look forward to seeing you again. Okay. Let's, let's run into rich roll again. Same time next year. All yes. right. <laughs> We're all on team sober. <laughs> I'm going to make a shirt next time. So something really embarrassing and maybe I'll even be vegan by then. So we'll chat. We'll chat, Heidi. <laughs> Give me my oh opinion. my gosh. It's, it's just onward and upward from here. <laughs> oh, all right. We got to wrap this up. All right. Okay. Bye you guys. Thank you. Okay. I love you. Bye guys. Mwah. Bye. Okay. One more thing we forgot to add. So we are plugging in Heidi Ferrer to promote a program that she has. Here you go. Yes, yeah, so I have a personal development program that I've put together that I'm launching beginning of May, and it's called the Recover Freedom Breakthrough, and it's going to be an online eight-week course of sobriety support and also one-on-one -on -one support with me uh, through via email for course support, and it's everything that I needed to learn uh, outside of recovery meetings and AA in order to get the click, as I call it, uh, to stay sober and get to 
a higher, sober, happy life, uh, and also prevent relapse as well. So um, I'd love to um, have everyone check it out, and I'll be putting that on my Instagram, and also on my blog will be all the information. And what's your blog, Heidi, so that people can know how to find it? My blog is girl2mom.com. So it's G-I-R-L-T-O-M-O-M.com. And I'll also put the information on my Instagram at recoverher. Right. Great. So we forgot to record that and let Heidi self-promote. So we're just tagging this on <laughs> at the end here because we did not want to want to miss the opportunity to promote her new program. So thank you. So I love y'all. Unruffled podcast was created and produced by Sandra Primo and Tammy Salas. Our show is edited and mixed by Steve Hecht. Original music composed and performed by Caitlin Schumacher. Original artwork created by Tammy with the help of graphic designers, Chris Aguirre and Amy Lanier. Thanks for listening.